Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. Welcome to another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. I'm here with a special guest today. All of our guests are special, but this one has created the most conversation in our office after my team sat down and watched his uh, TED talk. And it's such a topic, it's so moving, it's so compelling. Um, we refer to him affectionately as Harper's dad. Everyone's like, does anyone know his real name? Yes, it's Cody <laughs> Goldberg coming to us via Zoom all the way from Portland. Um, I'm going to change it up. I'm going to get um, Cody to introduce himself and a little bit about his story because he articulates it in such a beautiful way. Thank you so much for joining us, Cody. Uh, Lucas, it's a, it's a pleasure to connect with you here this, this well, evening for me. I, is it morning for you now? Yeah, midday. 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 It's a, it's a sincere pleasure. I'm a huge fan of uh, Australia and of anyone like yourself who cares deeply about play. So let's let's do this. Am I on to, to do my full intro now? Is yeah, that, is go it me? for it. It's all year. Tag. Well, you're um, <laughs> let, me, let me start by saying, and I appreciate that um, you guys and your company are so focused on play. Uh, of course, when I stumbled into this work 10 years ago, I was a marketing, not even executive, I was a marketing lackey at Adidas, or as I think you guys say down there, Adidas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and my wife and I took a walk to our neighborhood park with our daughter, Harper. And this just to set the stage of what we're talking about. Um, Harper had been born with a very rare genetic difference called Emmanuel syndrome. And we, we had been told that she would never walk nor talk in her lifetime. Um, the reason this is, is important to set the stage is just because, again, I was a marketing lackey at Adidas, taking a walk in the park with my daughter, who used, uh, for the first time in her short life, a, a walker with wheels uh, to walk across our neighborhood park. And it was a glorious sunny day in June of 2009. And when we, when we made our way to the playground at the end of the park, that little yellow walker became stuck in the wood chips that surround the typical playground structure. So that's always the setup for my story, which is that on that day, because of my wife, acknowledging that that was a real injustice, um, we, we, we started a journey that became now our nonprofit called Harper's Playground that is building playgrounds now around the world that achieve the, um, the hurdle of allowing children like Harper the opportunity to play. Um, because as your listeners know full well, play is the basis of human development. And to deny that to children like my daughter Harper is an injustice that's unmentionable because most of the world is very playable for most children anyway. 
Um, and I think that's really why my passion for this work is so deep. We don't actually really need to make overproduced play areas all over the world. There's a lot of great play areas all over the world. Nature provides them. So when we're going to actually build a place for play for children, knowing how important play is for, for all children, they, of course they should be accessible to children who have disabilities because the rest of the world is not accessible to them. And of course they should be nature spaces because nature is what children really need for play anyway. And I know you know that because that's your business. So anyway, I don't know if my intro worked there for you, but um, hopefully that sets us up for now conversation. 100%. And um, I would encourage anyone, press pause on this podcast, go over, <laughs> put in Cody Goldberg, TED Talk, um, watch it, be inspired, come back and listen to this conversation unfold because there's so many areas to go, even just when it comes to I love how you articulate accessibility because it can be a bit of a, well, accessibility is just a word and words define our action. But when you use these words, inclusion is everywhere, always, and everything. Those three words, I was just like, got it. I think it's possible. Yeah. Not, but, just, not just possible, but uh, mandatory for uh, creating the kind of communities that we, we really need. Um, anyway, I cut you off. Sorry, Lucas. No, no, Go not ahead. at all. And um, <laughs> I love how you took action on this. A lot of people would feel the injustice and be annoyed. But I love the fact that you took action. You sold your Cadillac to raise money for this. You yes. bake sailed. You got other people on board. And you ended up raising so much money to make Harper's first original playground. Was it $1.2 in funds? 1.2 million US dollars uh, in three years. And I did skip over a lot of the story there, didn't I? But um, that, let me just say, this is really important, I think. Um, there's, there's no hero story here. I was desperately looking yeah. my entire life for my purpose. Um, and so for the grace of, of um, my daughter coming into my life, it was revealed to me. Mm. So I, I definitely think it's a, it's a real privilege and an honor to be recognized for doing the work that I get to do. But um, there is 100% no doubt in my mind that my lifelong pursuit of trying to figure out what I was meant to do was this work. Yeah. And so I don't think you deserve a, a blue ribbon for that. You deserve, you know, you just, I'm just lucky. Yeah. I'm so lucky to say that I take part in designing places for play. Yeah. And I hold that in high esteem. I can completely relate. Um, I remember when I was a full-time educator, um, I pitched on a job and it was like, okay, if we get this job, everything's going to change. And I was just like, so pent up about it. Just being like, I want to make this. I want to get this job. I want to get this job. And then I just had the revelation that, if I get the job or not, it doesn't make any difference because I'm in the field which I'm meant to be in. And if I get that job or not, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm still going to be there to support children in any way to have a childhood. And when you talk about play, it is a right to a childhood. That's where we discover ourselves. That's how we learn about our, as um, Claire Warden puts it, our, 
our, our place in space. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so many facets of that. And it goes into the UN. It's a right to play. And you mentioned that also in your TED Talk. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting about when I started this work, again, as I, so I mentioned, I was a marketing lackey at Adidas. I'd started in the mailroom and I had worked my way very minimally up and out of the mailroom at, at Adidas. Um, and I never really wanted to be in marketing or selling shoes. So back to like my own journey of, I, I really wanted to make a life for myself that my career was uh, my life and that it was work that I thought was meaningful. And um, when my wife and I decided we were gonna change our neighborhood playground, I mean, the stories, I could really bore your listeners, but I'll say the happenstance and the way that my wife and I were able to take control of a public park project was really a, a series of miracles and uh, a lot of hard work married with a lot of, um, yeah, there's no other word for miracles. So anyway, I find myself, I'm this lackey in marketing at Adidas, all of a sudden in charge of a, the design of a public park. First time ever, what do I, what do I know? So I start pouring over everything I can read about play and everything that I came across opened up a new door to just how marvelous this, this ubiquitous play idea is, right? Like I just have, have been pouring over. So the UN, when I, when I found the United Nations Declaration of uh, the Right of Children to Play and then uh, Dr. Stuart Brown is one of my you know, leading mentors mm-hmm. in play theory from Stanford University and the, the National Institute for Play in the United States. Uh, and what he writes about play and just every book I could find uh, about play and its importance. I just, I couldn't even believe how all the words I was reading became my talking points when I was telling people what I wanted to do. Um, and it's just, it's just marvelous. I believe in, um, uh, I, I, I believe that there's, uh, this thing called intelligent design and that we are designed as beings to, to gravitate towards play because it's so good for us, right? And it's just this—it's just this wonderful feedback loop that we get by by entering into the play space. And so it's been really a wonderful journey to kind of reconnect with my own childhood through this work and recognize that when I felt my best as a child was through was in play, and as an adult, I try to keep reconnecting with that yeah. to do the work. And so I'm just so lucky. Yeah. I don't know. I concur. Um, you mentioned it there. Where did you play as a child? <laughs> um, I grew up in the lovely rural hills of, of Marin County, California. So it's across the Golden Gate Bridge, northwest of San Francisco. My home, my childhood home, bordered on open space. So I literally could walk out my back door to a trail and go play in the woods. Yeah. And so... I certainly was one of those lucky ones. Um, I played in nature. Yeah. Uh, that was, if I, I was very athletic and sports oriented, so I played a lot of sports with my friends, but I would say we spent equal, if not more time running around in the hills, making and, up games. And you also had a unique schooling with the outdoor classroom that your community created, essentially. Correct. Maybe you could it go was into called that. The, 
so yeah, a very experimental school system titled Open Classroom. Uh, and my hippie parents and some of their hippie friends uh, overthrew the local school board. Or they didn't really overthrow it, but they, you know, they ran for school board. And they, cr they created the school model that they um, believed in wholeheartedly, which really more than anything was play-based learning. Yeah. And um, so it's funny, as a kindergartner, uh, which I think in the U.S. is like six years old or seven years old, we're sitting around talking about the difference between intrinsic and e extrinsic motivators <laughs> <laughs> at that age. Yeah. Because we were, we were allowed to tr create our own schedule. Yeah. And if we wanted to play all day, we were allowed to. Yeah. And now you and play then, all day. Well, you know what? I definitely, I spent a fair bit of time on spreadsheets, but uh, I will say, you know, the, the design work that I get to do is probably a little less than yourself, but and in some years, I don't spend a ton of time in design, but it's so joyful that I will trade a thousand hours of spreadsheet management for those one, that one hour in the design room. Yeah. It's 100%. just so, so Yep, I learned to surrender that. <laughs> yeah. like, I'm not doing spreadsheets. It takes away yeah. from what I do. Um, what were the major tools? What were the major learnings that you can recall, the ones that stand out most um, that you can now apply from your childhood until your role mm. at Harper's Playground? Optimism. I think that uh, one of the many positive aspects of play is that it is in a in of in and of itself an optimistic act, and it fosters optimism. Um, I'm a I'm a huge proponent of positive mindset and um, envisioning positive results. Yeah. And I think that's all part of the play process. And when you're playful, it not only um, helps you see the opportunity for good things to happen, but it helps create the environment where that happens as well. So I, I have a, a hugely optimistic uh, worldview. And I think that came from my playful childhood. And it's how I run my organization, or try to. Yeah. And so there's a bit of backstory for our listeners. Um, you went from opening Harper's on the shoestring, self-funded, um, model and then from there and the publicity that it got you've been able to springboard and you were contacted by hundreds of people across the country saying we need this as well so what that what's that journey been like well so it definitely was revealing itself the journey was revealing itself to me in those three years when it was bake sales into learning how to write a grant to designing our own playground um when it, when it opened and was received with such uh, pure and unadulterated uh, play value for everyone, um, I think that was, that was the fuel even beyond all the, of the requests that we received from around the world for support. It was witnessing how it worked. Um, the magic of Harper's Playground is that it's a very unstructured environment, right? And literally, we all know if we know anything about play that unstructured play is 
the best, right? I mean, and that's really it's if it's if it's overly structured, that's not really play, right? Mm -hmm. If if adults are guiding it too much, or if it's if it's too structured, that's not really play. Is has to be kind of spontaneous, yep. or 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 child led. Our unstructured environment has proven to be so um, compelling for children without disabilities at all that that really was the kind of the super aha moment of um, wow this work has to be done yeah because because I would still I would still be doing this if Harper my daughter Harper was the only one who benefited from it I would absolutely remain uh, committed to this fight and I would tell people look your kid can play somewhere else I'm building Harper's playground for her and I don't care yeah I would do that but the fact that what we're building is so much better for all those kids, um, just, just, it's kind of like, it's, it's why we can't fail. But yeah, so the journey has been uh, overwhelming. The, the hundreds of, of requests for our work really happened a year after we opened it. Um, the Today Show here in, in the States, it's a pretty big morning national television show, did a feature story on us. And it was about a year after we had opened. And that, when that story aired, that was when hundreds of requests from all over the country and even the world started pouring in, uh, really sa uh, either saying, that's great, we're gonna do our own one, thank you for the motivation, or, hey, we wanna do one, can you help us? Yeah. And so the last, these last seven years have been uh, all about building a, an organization that can actually answer those requests yeah. and work with people and help them. 100%. And I think it's important to acknowledge like where we've been at for a really long time in creating these playgrounds um, and letting design dominate. And even when it came to accessible playgrounds, inverted commas, that really, they're not really accessible. And like, so what's happened is designs ruled play we've ended up with this really structured, non-accessible design intended thing. An example would be the fort, the post and platform. Um, and it's accessible because you've got a ramp going into the chip bark and it's got a big platform on the bottom. So these are the things you're coming up against. And I'm sure this is happening for your family in the community as well, just at general access. So what, what's been your major challenges yeah. to overcome that mindset of, designers dictating the experience and actually making it about children with disabilities experience. Yeah, I, I'm definitely, I'm still perplexed at the number of times I'm asked to come into a community to, you know, do for better, for lack of a better phrase, my song and dance, I get up, I tell my story, same story I started with, with you. Uh, I have images I share, um, I share a lot of stories about, uh, especially focusing on how the play environments we have helped build really do work better for kids without disabilities. Yeah, This is like the crux of what I've, I'm talking about with people. And yet there are still, especially people in the playground world or either designers or equipment company representatives who have convinced themselves that there must be some trade-off between accessibility and playability that it's impossible to create universally accessible and equally playable spaces. Yeah. And it's like a weird um, mental block that they cr have created for themselves or something because 
I just, I am convinced, not just convinced, there's just nothing further from the truth. Yeah. And a child doesn't see it as an accessible playground. Not at all. That's a crazy thing. I, um, not at all. And, and we work, one of my favorite things in this work is working with children on the design process. And what I love about doing that is that it's the adults who come forward and say, wait a second, we've got to balance accessibility with playability. And the kids are always adamant. No, we have to make it accessible. Like children are born with that social justice. You know, we all are that children, everyone started out as a child. Children have such a high, uh, place such a high value on social justice that when I work with children in the design process, they're adamant that universal accessibility is, is non-negotiable. And it's adults in the room who are, who are suggesting that we should have to compromise. And so that's been one of the most interesting parts of this. And that, that's ongoing for me, for sure. Wherever I go, I need to sort of re-convince people uh, or find a way to show them that you can create universally accessible spaces that children without any disability whatsoever will flock to and love. And so that's my big challenge. That's where I'm, Yeah. once we've overcome that all the way, then we're good, then we're golden. And ultimately we're out of business, which is what I want to do. I'll hand it over to you guys. You guys go build them. Yeah. Uh, I just have to convince everybody. Yeah. And what are your go-tos in convincing? Maybe there's um, some listeners out there who are on our joint mission to make play more accessible to all children. Um, yeah. What's your advice to them? I think it's, it's really important to um, ask the right questions before you start designing your playground. Um, and so for me, one of the most important questions is who do I want to be able to play? And, and, and anybody who would say, well, I only want a certain number of people to play would probably, you know, they would feel bad about themselves. So they would think it differently. If you really accept the notion that everybody should be able to play, then, then you can't help but say, well, it's okay, then we have to create a universally accessible space. And then I ask people to suggest, well, what do they want to have happen in that play space? What are the activities that you want to see happen? I believe so passionately that social play is the most important part of play. And then when you get social play, you get all the other play, every other thing happens, but you want to make sure that social play. So minimalist uh, space, because kids play in empty lots and, you know, they play together. Yep. So a minimalist, universally accessible space, we don't have to overthink it. If you add a, a few fun other things, not to oversimplify your work, but let's just face it, if you create a, an environment with a couple boulders and a couple sticks and everyone can get there, they're going to play. Yep. Kids are going to play. So you don't have to overdo it. Of, of course, there are considerations for maintenance, longevity, safety, and all the rest. But at the end of the day, it's pretty simple. Create a space where people can gather, ensure that everyone can be there, and they'll take care of the rest. Yeah. Do you think that... Um that non-structured nature of it is the key to success? Well, I, I certainly think minimalism and, um, you know, there's this, uh, there's this wonderful quote that I use in a lot of my writings from uh, Chinese philosopher Lao Tse that, you know, to paraphrase it, cause I can't do it perfectly suggests 
in the empty spaces of things is where the real magic happens, right? Um, yeah. It's not the stuff, it's the emptiness. So um, I, I just think prioritizing social interaction, which doesn't require anything, it yep. requires actually less stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it's all about making sure people understand who do you want to be there and what do you want them to do? And I think I want everyone to be there and what I want them to do is play together. Yeah. So that's that. The rest of it is is so simple beyond that. I don't even know if I answered your question. I hope I did. I'm sure you did. <laughs> um, my brain's going so many places with where I want to go. But what I'm hearing as over overarching is that we have to start with the child at the center. Yeah. And I convey that to um, our followers as we want to look at the development of character in children first and foremost, and then we can consider everything else first. Um, there was recently a feature on a design of an all access playground and they went into how considered they had to be in this design because it was all access. But then as I continued to read the article, I continued to get more annoyed because they were highlight. I was like, okay, this is promising. We're heading somewhere good. And then they went on to talk about their the essential consideration of compliance first oh, and meeting, meeting the compliance <laughs> and how, how challenging it was when you mix play with compliance and considering the compliance. And at that stage, I closed that window and continued to be a bit annoyed. And it did prompt a conversation with my landscape architect as well that coincidentally happened to previously work at the firm. Um, <laughs> but he was saying he had a question that he wanted me to pass on that, um, when it comes to this compliance and you're looking at ramp access as a big part, um, he was like, "When it because it because in this design it was this huge twenty meter ramp with a platform at the top," and he was like, "How's that do anything? It's just that ramp defines the whole space, and there's no affordance to do anything else. So how do you yeah. get away personally? How do you get away from that conformity and that compliance from um, the projects you do?" Because I can see that you can you don't see that compliance in your spaces. Well, first of all, I, I like to share that. Um, you know, imagine bragging to your wife that you're you know you're you're complying with the minimum legal requirements of being a spouse. Like you, you haven't <laughs> broken any laws. Does that make you a good husband? You know, <laughs> I mean, nobody should be bragging about complying with the law. That's you know. We should be shooting for so much beyond that. Hundred um, um, percent. So, I mean, I think it's just radically altering the entire paradigm of what the public. So, I'm really concerned primarily with public parks because yeah. um, that's my higher priority first. I, I want everywhere to change, but these are public spaces built with public dollars that should work for everybody. Um, I'm trying to actually reshape the concept of playground and more into the idea of a public plaza that has playable features in it. Yeah, I like it. Because I want, I want all ages and abilities to feel equally welcome. Yeah, yeah. we want to and, do that as well. So we're predominantly in that early childhood sector. But yeah, this is a huge necessity. And one of our higher values is a childhood experience for all children. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I, 
to answer your question, hopefully as eloquently as possible, if, if I'm even involved in a conversation where we're talking about compliance, I, I want to blow the whole conversation apart and say, if, if we're, if we're talking about compliance, we're so wrong. Like if, if there's a minimum, uh, width for uh, a pathway, I don't want to meet it by, you know, two inches. I want to double it. I mean, I, it, cause full flow, there should never be a time where two wheelchairs might pass each other on a ramp, let's say, if there happens to be a ramp or something where one has to wait for the other to pass. Like compliance would tell you that you have to have only the width for one at one time. That's insane. They should be able to pass each other freely and other people too. So anytime it's compliance, I'm, I'm uh, my, yeah, my short, my hairs go up and I'm like, we have to be, way beyond compliance yeah. always we're uh, with whatever we're doing we're kin spirits in that sense you mentioned that i was like let's put that on the move that to the bottom of the list we'll sort everything else first yeah and yeah. then we may consider it but the crazy thing happens when you consider the childhood experience first pretty much by the time you get to compliance it's it's done correct and it hasn't driven that and it's only through those like in the 1950s where the post and platform thing came to life due to an injury on a slide for the first time. Um, and yeah. then moving into the realm of, what was it? Um, the swing slide sandpit seesaw. <laughs> the, four, <laughs> the, four S, the, the revolution of the four S's. <laughs> the default of the four and we still carry it today we just wrap it up in sheep's clothing yes you've put a pretty cladding on the outside with some panels but at the core of it you've created a post and platform that takes away from the childhood experience because they're transitioning between play the whole time there's no affordance to engage in the play there's no um, affordance yeah. to have an imprint on the space and I love the fact yeah. that in your playground you can have that you've got access everywhere but a child can still put their imprint on the space and as we know, the higher the imprint a child can make on the space, the higher the value to the child. Correct. I love hearing you talk about it because I'm still learning. Uh, you're using some of the buzzwords that I've only just come across. Affordances <laughs> yeah. is a new one for me. Um, and you could say imprint. Yeah. Um, which that's even a new one to me. But I think what you're saying, if I can uh, ask you to clarify, but that's really where, again, a, a more natural environment of course, just automatically allows a child to decide what it is Absolutely. and use their imagination. 100%. And, and the fact that people use the word imagination playgrounds for when they, they're themed, like a, you know, a fire truck or a you know, pirate ship, that's not imagination. That's actual uh, dictation. Yeah, um, adultification. <laughs> adultification. <laughs> yeah. We have a, a central feature of the Harper's Playground design is a hill. It's just a simple mound that uh, that's, I think, the thing that has blown my mind the most. And I, in, in my heart of hearts, I thought it would work the way it does. But I just I don't think I could have even imagined how this just really simple form could work the way it does. Children go bonkers for these hills that yep. we build. And it's because they can put their imprint on it. It's a... It's a, it's a volcano. I've heard kids talk, describe our, our hills in all different manner. They, they decide what it is. So not only is it fueling their imaginations, but as far as like what they do on it is rolling, jumping, sliding, 
uh, rough and tumble play or just sitting on it, having a conversation. It, it, it just affords so much more flexibility and playability and it doesn't stand in the way of the flow of motion. If, you know, we have teenagers who are do, doing parkour off our hills yep. while, while little toddlers who are learning how to walk are climbing up them. Yep. It's just a simple form and yet it's so much better than that posting platform. Yeah. And then you've got, in addition to the toddlers and the teenagers, you've got a child with a disability accessing the same space. Equally. Yeah. And I know it's an area that I personally have to improve on. Like, and that's why I'm so inspired to talk to you. I love um, how you mentioned a quote, Mary Poppins, um, play as, same again to paraphrase, um, play fosters empathy. Yeah. That's, um, that's such an important one for me because um, to sort of fill in a blank for you on that whole story arc I shared, when we received Harper's diagnosis, um, we had been through already a full month in the intensive care unit with her. And she almost didn't survive the first day of her life. Um, and after a month in the intensive care unit and all the highs and lows, the ups and downs of surviving all that, after being told she would never walk nor talk in her life, my greatest fear was the lack of empathy in the world for children like her. To be quite frank, I was scared about her future. And I, um, I prayed, I prayed hard for um, a way to change the world for her because I didn't want to worry about trying to change her. That didn't seem like the right path. So anyway, empathy, uh, is what I, I hope our playgrounds help creating. Yeah. And I'm, luckily, l- luckily empathy is a byproduct of play experience. Yeah. So we're on the right path. Absolutely. Um, I did a talk in Seattle, just up the road from you. And, um, it was that you can't have environmental sustainability with an environmental practice to which a lot of people like crossed their arms and were like, how dare you? <laughs> But it it all came back to, it needs to be a social practice. It needs to be one of connection. It needs to be one of accomplishment. Um, And then the byproduct of that connection experience and accomplishment is that we care for the space that cares for us. And when you're engaging the level of community that you are, you're creating that care for the community. And I think that's a big thing that's contributed to your success in when I view success, that's children using the space. It's not the publicity. It's anything like that. The success is the functionality. The success is the fulfillment and joy of these children. So I think you've like demonstrated that theory of social first in in such a beautiful way. So thank you. Got to thank you for that. And thank you for impacting so many children across America, it's phenomenal. Once again, I'm going to reference you in saying um, it's not a matter of no child left behind. It's a matter of more children left behind. I love that. Left behind, not in the sense of forgotten or ignored. Left behind in the sense of left behind to be a child. Left behind to have a childhood experience. Can you unpack that a little bit and what that phrase means to you? Well, it's very, it's very interesting. So this was a quote from my TED talk. Yeah. And uh, I believe 
that what you just shared was not what I meant, but is what you shared is is perfect. I I actually was saying, I and that was ad libbed. My TED talk was very much, and you have to have them very scripted, but it was very much ad libbed. I was suggesting that no Ch child left behind actually leaves more children left behind because the the over emphasis on testing, yeah, and te teaching to the test, yeah. But your interpretation is even better, which is. I would agree with you, leaving children to have their own time to investigate the world and 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 make up their own decisions. Back to what I was saying uh, about the, the school I was so lucky to attend, the, uh, the allowance and the affordance to have children decide when and where they would do their studies. Yeah. So that intrinsic motivators were at, at the heart of when a child actually learned. I mean, it's, it's so radical still to this day, but that was what I grew up with. And so in the early days, we would play all day, which was good for us. But eventually when we decided to focus on our studies, it was because we wanted to. And as we, I, as we all know, you hear these phrases, children today in many countries, too many countries are, are so overprogrammed all day long that their every every minutes from wake to sleep has been scheduled by their parents. Yep. And this is like one of the biggest detriments to childhood development because children need to be left behind, as you say, um, and allowed to be bored and to figure out what is their intrinsic motivator and what's special about them. Yeah. Um, ultimately, what is their special gift? Like, this is why I feel like I'm one of the luckiest people in the world is because I actually figured it out finally. It was not till I was 40 years old, but I know I was born to build these playgrounds. And that's a really lucky thing. And I think some children, especially the children who get uh, uh, just a really playful childhood or the right, somehow uh, their internal sense and their external world comes together. Some, I feel people sometimes figure it out really early in their lives. And those are the happiest people yeah. because everybody has something they're meant to do. I really believe that. And when we figure that out, it's, uh, it's amazing how it all comes together. Eventually we get invited onto podcasts <laughs> to talk about it. <laughs> I love how you discovered your purpose through play. And it wasn't actually- My special purpose. Yeah, your special purpose <laughs> is play. Um, and you did that through play, so. That's beautiful. And yeah. I can relate. Um, how do we design, get out of the design mindset of like, you know, designers get caught up in this thing. It's like, has to be, it's going to be pretty. It's going to have like this light and this and this. What's your number one tip for allowing you to get out of that space? I think removal of the ego is so important. And, um, I think design, the design world, people who call themselves designers, which I still am uncomfortable using that phrase for myself. Um, it's a world that's filled with a lot of ego. And yeah. when your ego is involved in design, then it's about you and not, and not the, the people you're supposedly designing for. But as I've really taken a deep dive into studying and looking at design and the design that speaks to my heart, um, I find that good, the really good designers are, are just zero ego. 
Yep. And it's, it's all driven by this empathy for the end user, right? And yep. that's why so many good designs are very accessible, very universally accessible, because ultimately, if you're trying to put empathy into your design, you have to be mindful for the most marginalized community. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I became a good playground designer literally was because in the design earliest design meetings, I kept asking this question, well, wait a second. It doesn't look like Harper can get there. Like as we were laying out the design, I want her to be able to get everywhere. Yep. All of a sudden I was driving the design through those simple questions. Yep. And that's why Harper's playground is great. It's not because of me. It's actually because of Harper and Harper's needs drove every element of the design. Yeah. And, and luckily her needs are the most yep. it, like needed and therefore it, it ended up working for everybody. Yeah. And this thing is like, oh, design needs to be considered. And I'll go, yep, it does need to be considered, but you don't design a table and say, well, I'm considering that it has to hold the weight of a laptop. <laughs> You, you design the desk in the context of how is a person going to interact with the desk? But when it comes yeah. to playgrounds, we've completely forgotten it. It's like we're Correct. considering everything else. We're considering the laptop on a desk. Um, another thing is one of this, oh, I forget his name, famous designer, um, designed some like the, the buildings that look like warp steel, like a wave, like a bit of silk in the wind, but it's actually steel. Famous, famous well, designer. So there's Gaudi from Spain, but I think the one you're talking about is, um, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, uh, but I, anyway, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'll put it in the show notes. You people can look it up. Yes. But a quote from yes. him, he says, we have to design for humanity, not economies. Yeah. And that quote with the lens of what you're doing added to it in the discussion with Dan, our landscape architect. I love it. It's empathy over economies and um, empathy over compliance. Well, and I, I am, I, this is an interesting challenge I'm facing. Answering the question about the cost difference between our design and the typical model. I, I am still desperately figuring out how best to answer that because I believe, uh, not believe, I know that economically speaking, our model is also better uh, in the long run. And there's a lot of different ways you can measure economic um, impact. But, you know, one of our jokes, uh, well, it's my joke, at least, um, our boulders, the boulder is a really central figure in our design for tactile feedback, uh, as a climbing structure, as something to jump off of, really large boulders, beautiful, big boulders. They are going to last upwards of a millennium. The typical playground structure, that post and platform is about 20 years. Yep. So uh, which one is, is a better economical choice? Yeah, 100%. Um, and, the, and the list goes on and on for why ours is actually cheaper in the long run. Yeah. Um, and, and economically speaking, if you're paying local artisans and, and builders and, and designers rather than putting a bunch of crap on a truck and, 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 and moving it across the country, um, economically, you know, the, the, the reasons why you want to build a, a more natural environment 
with with paying good designers to do it versus some company to ship it across yeah. anyway yeah it reminds me of a story um adam bain stock was sharing with yeah us i listened to that one about um with warranty and natural playgrounds and everything and he comes goes makes a playground for a public space and the inspector says what about my um, warranty on materials and he's like it's, it's, it's like it's a rock and he goes oh I'll, I'll, I'll make one for you now and he wrote a thousand year warranty on a piece of paper and handed it to him and said there you go <laughs> i didn't actually hear all the way to that one but i love that that's yeah. that's hilarious he's yeah. always always pushing it compliance um and in reference to um economies you're referring to that because they tend to be a bit more expensive potentially in the upfront cost now it yeah. definitely depends yeah um on the on the space and the decisions you could have a very expensive posted platform yeah and you could you could design a, a model like we do that might not only rival it but come in less yeah um and of, of course it depends if it's a brand new build or not yeah um yeah. A lot of times we're going in and, and replacing a structure within a, a space. Yeah. It'll be more expensive to do yeah. our design in that space versus just plopping another structure into it. Yeah. For sure. Because you have to change the uh, infrastructure. For sure. Um, when um, it comes to what you mentioned there about a rock um, and a rock and a boulder that you can climb on, an interesting point you could unpack for us, for the listeners, is that you know, you put a rock in, that's not technically going to be access to all children all the time based on their disability. So can you unpack that a bit for us? Because I know the stigma around it is like, no, everything in the playground has to be everywhere has to have access to like a wheelchair access and it has to be something they can engage with. But what you're saying is you're doing that mix. So can you, yeah. I'm bold. We, all, all of the boulders that we've put into our playgrounds, um, they're accessible. Yeah. You can get to the boulders. Uh, absolutely. Um, so it's, it's our, the way our rules are stated, which are not compliance rules, but are more aspirational rules. Yep. Uh, we create radically inclusive spaces through three levels of inviting design. And the first most important level is physically inviting. So, and that, the first level of physically inviting is accessible. If yep. you use wheels, you can access everything in our park. You can get to it. Anywhere anyone might gather, you can get there. And so boulders are surrounded by uh, either rubber surfacing or concrete, depending how big they are. So you, uh, yep. anyone in wheels can get to all of our boulders. The second level is adaptive. And that's where some 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 uh, affordances for, for lack of a better word, of, um, are, some allowances are made that you can't make every single thing 100% adaptive mm. to all abilities. And that would be a fool's yeah. errand, but we, we do our very best. And that includes, of course, uh, transfer decks onto any individual feature, yeah. wheelchair accessible features by themselves. Um, yeah. For instance, we have an elevated sand table that was very important that we made sure that a wheelchair user could roll up to our sand, to our sand area and play with wet sand. Yeah. That, that was, you know, that's, that's a level of adaptive. And yeah. anyway, I think that's a confusion. That. It's around the 
adaptive environment versus accessible. Is that what something you come up against, people? Well, I think people use the words adaptive, accessible, and inclusive interchangeably all the time. Yeah. And so a big part of my work is to suggest inclusive means you're so much beyond accessible or adaptive. Yeah. You have to think way beyond those two things. Those are aspects of inclusive. But inclusive design is being much more thoughtful about ensuring affordances for social play and and then good design. I mean, I do believe that there are um, there are elegant, beautiful designs that do take some talent to achieve versus, uh, I don't know, designs that are just off-putting and and you you know that's that's that that becomes much more difficult to define that's art right yeah. i think a good space should have an artistic element to it but again the more you allow natural materials to dominate it that that's art because yeah and it doesn't age like you together. mentioned like that's what i'm telling the clients when we're putting in these natural materials natural environments you don't have to worry about the old primary color post and platform going out of fashion because these trees grow, this environment grows and changes to mold the needs of the children. So you're not going to have to have yeah. this crazy expenditure again. Yeah. The, the, the designer of the natural world is pretty good at design. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the ecology's got that buckled down. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I'm holding a boulder here. I, I like real, like, well, it's not a boulder, it's a rock, but I love tactile real materials yeah and um so obviously you're layering that as well as that sensory input is a huge part although you you have to have i love the fact that yes as a function we need rubber to make it accessible but equally you hold that in the same value as a natural boulder or wood surfaces is that a yeah. part of that intention design as well for sure i mean that i would i would I would gladly remove all the rubber from our designs and have it just be on top of concrete. That's all, of course, a safety yeah. consideration. Yeah. The rubber replaces the wood chips for the fall yeah. and attenuation for, for federal guidelines. Yeah. But back in the day of the early playgrounds and some of the best playgrounds were designed by artists yes. uh, in, and they were, they were landscapes and all the features were on top of concrete. And of course, sometimes children fell and got some yep. good split lips or broken yeah. bones. Are you familiar My, with the um, Noguchi, the famous designer, the Noguchi table and his foray into the play world and his journey that's into That's what I was it. thinking it's, about. Yeah, that's, same. It comes to mind. It's just about. like questioning, make, by questioning your idea of space, it makes, it makes you reflect on your own place in that yep um i'll put yep. that podcast about noguchi's playground and um, play mountain in the show notes as well so if you're feeling inspired click on that phenomenal podcast i listen to it regularly when i need inspiration i'm like i'm going back i love looking at those designs um certainly motivated us to figure that what we were doing was on the right path yeah. based on what we what we saw that he was into yeah I love, sure. I look at the Harper's Playground designs and other playgrounds you've done. And I was like, oh, it's kind of like you got a play mountain type of vibe in here. But now I link it in. I'm like, it all comes together beautifully. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, um, and, and 
Yep. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I, I was just going to say back to what I was saying about I would I would prefer a space that allowed for a few more injuries to to be quite frank because yep. as we know um, part of that play experience this is what we haven't touched on yet but um, too much but what children really need is a level of difficulty and danger to to actually really get the right play experience and yep. that's why natural environments and running around in the hills behind your house if you're lucky enough to have that like myself and so many children do have some level of that uh, children need to face and overcome their fears and on occasion get injured by realizing that they they went too far and the the the, the movement to reduce all danger from play has definitely been one of the biggest mistakes yeah we've we've made for our children biggest impact um i've got a contact for you um for this new product from a queensland company they make a wood chip that is accessible you can push mm. a wheelchair on it and all their local councils are ripping all their old bark chip out and replacing it with this because you can push a pram on it you can push a wheelchair on it okay which is cool um tell us why turtles are not native <laughs> to Portland, but they feature heavily in Harper's Playground. I think it's a beautiful narrative. It doesn't make sense, and that's what I like about it as well, because on the surface it doesn't make sense. But a designer, I like it because a designer would have put an animal in there that's super considered, and um, it ties into this narrative that they've created. You've created a narrative that doesn't make sense, and it celebrates it in a more. It's it celebrates it in a beautiful way so tell us about turtles well interestingly enough my wife and i on our on our honeymoon were in mexico and at a really remote beach about four hours drive north of zihuatanejo we we slept on the beach and we woke up next to a sea turtle laying laying its eggs um and I've always liked the sea turtle anyway, but that, that was, so it was already powerful for my wife and I. And the, this bully pulpit that we had where we were in charge of a public park design, when it came to choosing to put artwork in there, we kind of had a lean towards our love of the sea turtle anyway. So it's very personal. Yeah. Um, so I think I, there's a good chance that my justification for the sea turtle was found after the fact, because I was like, I just like them. <laughs> and I thought, well, how, how can I just, how can I justify the sea turtle? Now, I don't remember exactly. Maybe I actually was, mo was motivated, but either way, uh, as I thought about the sea turtle and the way it struggled to pull itself up onto the beach, that, that time we watched it lay its eggs. I mean, it's really remarkable to see how much effort the sea turtle puts in to getting up on the beach, right? It's like, it takes hours and it's so it moves like an inch at a time it's it's just not it's not really meant to maneuver on the beach um but if you've ever watched footage of a sea turtle in the ocean i mean they fly they soar it's just yeah. it's gorgeous and anyway it really did strike me when we decided we wanted to put sea turtles in our in our park that because the sea turtle struggles on land so mightily but but literally soars in the ocean like a bird this concept really was striking to us that we're trying to create an environment where everyone can fly. And 
that's that's really what it's about everyone can really fly through harper's playground if you're on wheels of any sort um you can fly through it and um so it's really stuck for us it's a it's an important symbol of what we're doing 100 percent. and on that note i've got to say thank you firstly what's a question that's got gifted for those people listening that want to support the children having more access to play in their neighborhoods, where do they start mindset wise? I, I think the most important mindset for people to uh, obtain to support play is to recognize how important it is for children. And I think right, starting right there, the recognition of how vital play is for children is, is really where it starts. I think the more you, uh, understand plays value for children the more compelled you'll be to make sure that there are affordances mm. for all children to get access to play yeah i think it's as simple as that it's it's plays value in the in the shaping of healthy adults um that once you understand that you can't help but want to make sure everyone gets it 100 percent Thank you so much. Um, you know, I appreciate this chat because it challenges me as well. It challenges me to be better as a designer with my team, um, better in my consideration about how children use the space, even consideration in the materials I use because it's easy to get um, narrow-minded and stick to your ideas. But I appreciate um, your time today and opening up that corridor of my vision to see a whole different and new world um, that all children have to access. So um, I'm sure our listeners got so much out of it. We haven't touched on a lot of other stuff as well. So I'd love to um, have you back again. And um, yeah, I'm just humbled that I got to chat to you and thank you for inspiring me and the listeners. I have had a, a, a real pleasurable experience chatting with you tonight, and I would say, well, or midday for you, I, I will say that it's a it's a real rare honor for me to speak with somebody who's so passionate about play and play spaces. So thank you for having me on and offering me this chance. And uh, let's let's uh, I'll make you this challenge since you've you're challenging yourself. Find the right project to pull me in on, because uh, I'm looking forward to my first my first playground in Australia. So We're on it. Let's do it. We'll do it and we'll post it and <laughs> set the bar. I love it. Yes. That was a pleasure. I'm so pumped about that. Um, we're going to change things. So how's that? Awesome. Lovely. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you for listening to another play at forward worthy podcast. That was the inspiring Cody Goldberg, also known affectionately as Harper's dad. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and I look forward to you joining us again soon on Play It Forward.